Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. We've got lots of stuff for you today. Uh, We're going to kick off with uh, a look at public housing. You know, you can't get away with forgetting that public housing and the uh, local government, uh, the uh, rather the state government, uh, state Labor government in Victoria, is queuing up to uh, be part of the neoliberal advance uh, to uh, calling it uh, public housing renewal, but which is really the sell-off of, of a major amount of public land which is where public housing is by selling off eleven estates, nine to eleven estates. A surprise, surprise in salubrious inner city suburbs and other suburbs where uh, the uh, land values have gone up uh, meteorically over the last uh, few decades. Uh, anyway, we're going to go to Grand Place where uh, that's in uh, Brunswick West. They had a community meeting and we'll hear some uh, more about what's going on for those people in particular, but about the uh, campaign around saving public housing. Uh, we're going to... Uh, Go to the comedy debate. We're going to have a small amount of the comedy debate that the uh, Green uh, Left Alliance um, had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a major fundraiser for uh, the Green Left Weekly. Their um, newspaper, which is also online. Uh, We've got a little bit of uh, Rod Quantock, who's the uh, usual MC. He was there and he was in good form. And we're going to listen to one of the uh, uh, affirmative uh, to the question, is uh, Trump going to tweet us into oblivion? Uh, I'm going to use the rest of the uh, stuff I got on that night uh, for uh, the summer season. So this is just a taster. Uh, of course, we've got uh, Kevin. This is the week that was. Kevin's been sick, so uh, how do you do to Kevin? He got off his sick bed to uh, give you his comedic appraisal of the past week. And uh, then we're going to uh, hear from a uh, thing I went to, which was uh, about the right to strike. But before we get on, some important messages. Yes, it's the Concrete Gang looking for your money this Monday the 9th of July at the Bowling Club at Port Melbourne, 11am. Spring Street, Port Melbourne. Be there 
It's going to be a great turn. We're going to have the jaded cats. It's going to be fun, fun, fun. Make money for 3CR. Get a feed. Win a raffle. And get legless. Get legless. (laughs) What time? I said 11 a.m., but we'll do it again because that was pretty bad. Oh, <laughs> That's some of my best work. Grace in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji. We all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Yeah, I'm Brian, this is Nigel. How you going? Happy night of week. And yeah, we're just going to do a bit of solo on the DJ. Beautiful. In July 2018, 3CR proudly presents Beyond the Bars coming to you right across NAIDOC Week. Beyond the Bars is Australia's only live prison radio broadcast giving a voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates. On Monday, July 9th, we're live from Deer Park Women's Prison from 11am. On Tuesday, July 10th, we're at Barwon Prison from 11 till 2 On Wednesday, July 11th, you can hear from the men at Fulham between 12 and 2 and then catch the men from Loddon Prison between 2 and 4. On Thursday, July 12th, we're live from Port Phillip Prison and on Friday, our final broadcast for the week is from Marguerite Correctional Centre between 11 and 2. Make sure you tune in for Beyond the Bars 2018, Monday, July 9th through to Friday, July 13th, celebrating NAIDOC Week with the men and women inside. Vote for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Vote for your mic. And thanks to all those people out there who have supported Solidarity Breakfast uh, through our Radiothon and uh, 3CR in general. We're not quite over the line. Uh, Solidarity Breakfast still needs a little bit of uh, support. So if you're listening and you want to make sure that uh, we can hold our head up high, that the uh, bar on the... the, uh, chart that shows all those programs that have reached their target uh, and we're one of them, then uh, give, throw some cash, throw some cash so that uh, 3CR and Solidarity Breakfast can fall over the line. Uh, as I said, we went to Grom Place. That was on the 1st of July, uh, White Rabbits. 1st of July was Sunday. And there was a community meeting down there at the uh, community centre. Uh, uh, and uh, Grom Place is in uh, Brunswick West. There was uh, quite a few people there. Uh, and uh, we first up, we'll hear from Sue Bolton. Sue Bolton is a uh, Moreland City Councillor. And uh, she uh, has been... Um, and also uh, on the socialist ticket for the upper house in the upcoming state election, which is November the 24th. And uh, she gives a good roundup of what the whole, all the issues, uh, but particularly with a focus on Grand Place. So for people who don't know me, I'm Sue Bolton. So I'm one of the local councillors and also I've been um, involved in the public housing defence network. Um, 
I'd like to first start by acknowledging we're standing on Aboriginal land today, the land of the Wurundjeri, of the Kulin Nation, stolen but never ceded. Um, also, it would be, there are quite a wide range of people here today. There are people here, residents who've been affected directly by the plan to bulldoze Grand Place, um, this house, public housing estate next door. Um, there are also residents from other estates uh, which are under threat. Um, there are residents who live nearby who are worried about overdevelopment and lack of um, democratic rights of residents. And there are residents of other nearby estates which are not up for redevelopment at the moment, um, but you know, could be um, in the future if, uh, if we lose these estates. Um, so there are people here from a wide range of different perspectives. So, um, you know, probably we, we will need to sort of just listen to each other's concerns and, and think about how we might sort of go forward. Um, do, for people who sort of might be nearby residents who are living in private housing, has anyone got any questions about what's going, what's happening to the public housing estates or people feel like they sort of know? I mean, basically, just a brief um, summary is the current state government intends to sell off between nine and 12 public housing estates to private developers um, to bulldoze um, and construct new buildings, which will mostly be many levels higher than the current dwellings. Um, but, and it's under the title Public Housing Renewal Program, but the title is a misnomer because most of the new developments will be private housing. They won't be public housing. And what the government calls social housing uh, that will be part of these developments will not be the same as public housing. Um, they'll, they'll be run by or, or run by uh, community housing associations, which means that people won't have security of tenure and they'll be paying higher rents than you pay in public housing. Who are they going to be run by? Um, community housing associations. It's sort of... It's like a sneaky form of privatisation. In a sense, they're meant to be... Um, not-for-profit organisations, but in reality they're run more like businesses. Um, so, and this is what England has done. So now the council housing in England um, is not council housing anymore. It's run, it's not publicly owned anymore, um, which is really partly what brought us to Grenfell Towers and, and that terrible fire. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, so while they're not, yeah, yeah, so a lot of people haven't heard of them, and you don't have the same rights. You don't have security of tenure like you do as a public housing tenant, and you pay thirty percent of your income in rent rather than twenty-five percent, and also they house very few people on benefits. Um, so they prefer people who are working full-time or half-time. So it means that a lot of people in the most vulnerable income groups don't get housed under the... Whereas in public housing, you can get housed if you're on benefits. Um, so, but also, this is really about privatisation of public land. Like, so there's a combination of the impact on the community on these estates and the privatisation of public land. Um, it's not just privatisation, it's 
of market value, mm. which kind of supersedes all the things Sue's mm. saying because mm. it's catering to the developer mm. maximum profit to demolish all the estates and give him carte blanche to build private uh, properties for sale on the open market as well as the government properties. So that means you get people living together who don't want to be together, mm. i.e. private tenants and Office of Housing Tenants. Neither party agreed to live with each other. This is a money-making scheme between the developer and the government, as far um, as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, that's right. You don't need to bulldoze an entire state unless you plan for this to be, you know, a profit-making deal for the developers. I'll just end on this last point. Um, where we're up to in this campaign, because we have had three public meetings here for residents of Grand, Grand Place, uh, and supporters. Um, while a lot of people have been moved out of the estates, not everyone has moved out. There are still a large number of people on all of the estates, including Grand Place. Um, some people have signed relocation agreements and moved out, but there are a number of people who are refusing to sign relocation agreements. Um, and which means that the government can't move ahead with demolishing these estates while there's still people refusing to sign. Um, now, there might be some people who feel that they have to sign the agreements and, and leave, but while there are people refusing to sign, then it means we've got a chance to save the estates still. But what we do need is to build a strong enough community campaign, I think, off the estates as well as on the estates, to support the people who refu are refusing to leave. And that's our challenge. So I'm putting up a motion at the council meeting, the Morland Council meeting on the 11th of July for a public meeting, uh, for council to initiate a public meeting with a view to, if it's council organised, it might be a bit broader than just what the public housing campaign can, can build so that we can try and build a broader campaign off the estates. A lot of people do know about what's happening, um, but we need to broaden the campaign so that we can defend the people who don't want to go. And we're also in the pro process of approaching trade unions, um, particularly the construction unions, to say that we want them to refuse to um, cross a community picket line to demolish um, the estates uh, while there are people refusing to go. And I think we need for the um, CFMU to agree to that. Um, we need to sort of demonstrate that there's a community campaign, a strong enough community campaign, that they won't cross any uh, community picket line. Um, so there's still a chance we can win, but there is, people are feeling under pressure, we know. But there is a chance we can win because there are a lot of people who are refusing to go. And then we've got the story of people who've been relocated and then are coming back. That we need to find out about. Well, that's it for me. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're at the Guam Place public meeting, community meeting that they had on July the 1st. And uh, we're going to move on to hear some voices, for, uh, other voices. That was Sue Bolton who gives us a, a um, overview. Uh, and uh, the first first voice we hear now is uh, actually the Greens candidate for Brunswick, 
uh, it's uh, Tim Reid. Now, the Greens have been, and he outlines the, how involved the Greens have been in uh, supporting public housing and uh, trying to push back from this so-called public housing renewal, neoliberal takeover of public land coming from the uh, state government. Uh, but following that, there's some voices from uh, residents and uh, some other people working in this space. So let's move on. I think it's important that we don't let the government get away with its responsibility to provide a roof over the head of every Victorian. It's a fundamental responsibility. And so what I want to say briefly today is just to update people on what's been happening in Parliament about this. So um, Samantha Ratnam's spoken to this group uh, previously a couple of times and uh, she and other Greens in the Upper House of State Parliament have moved and attempted to disallow um, what's happening with this program but sadly at the moment we no longer have the numbers um, and so we're trying to push the government in other ways and remind them that 30 years ago more than 7% of Victorian families lived in some form of public or social housing and that number's dropped to something like 4% or just over 4% now. And with this so-called renewal project, the government is taking a big step away from its responsibility to provide public housing. And they seem to be doing this under cover of this renewal program, and they're saying it's going to provide a nice salt and pepper mix of public and private. But as Sue's ably explained, and I don't need to go into much more detail, for every rebuild public apartment there'll be a, a, an average of 2.4 private apartments. It works out to a privatisation of about 70% of precious inner city public housing land. Land that's going to be so much more valuable to the community to provide public housing as our population grows. So I'm here today with um, Mark Riley, a Greens councillor and, and Sue Bolton councillor and James Williams, another Greens candidate for Essendon, and, and we're here to support um, the residents here at Grand Place, but also in other estates. I know there are residents from other public housing <coughs> estates here today, um, and also very much the Public Housing Defence Network ca um, campaigners in this campaign to force the government to step back, to, to change course, and, and to accept responsibility for providing public housing. So the Greens initiated a, um, uh, an upper house inquiry which has just reported and revealed that there's 82,000 people at the moment on the public housing waiting list and, and we have put forward a proposal to build 40,000 new public dwellings over a six year period. Um, and so, so we're providing an example of what needs to be done um, and showing that the government that they need to be looking out for people and not speculators. Uh, and, and which is what this is about. And, and I referred earlier to this salt and pepper mix of, of you know, this nice blend of public and private that they're aiming for, but in practice it's turned into a much more um, segregated, uh, ghetto-like um, setup in, in Rathdown Street uh, in Carlton, for example, where public's on one side of the wall and private on the other. Um, and uh, so that, that's not, I think, what the people of Brunswick want, and, and uh, so I'm... I've just come from a door knock up on the hill up there and I'll be going back shortly so I won't be able to hang around for long. And I'm talking to people about this issue of essentially privatisation by stealth. So 
Thank you very much. And there's no reported crime on the Bron estate. If you can ask the police, there's no issues with regard to crime. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I don't think there's any need to, to widen <coughs> up or, or change what's happening. And by all means, let's build more public housing. We need more public housing. But this, this business of 2.4 private apartments for every public, uh, you can't do it again. Um, as, as Kate Shaw said, it's like chopping up the back of the house to keep the front of the house warm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can only do that once. So I'm going to stop there and thank you very much. And, and uh, we've got a petition on um, savepublichousing.org.au, uh, which I urge people to jump onto that website, put your name down, uh, and, and we'll apply as much pressure as we can. Thanks very much. When I went to pay to rent, my name's Neville Haining. I live in 35 Grand Place. I've been here 33 years. And when I found out on last Thursday, they offered to drop my rent $30 to keep as many people in the three bedroom flats as possible because the ones and twos are going. Did you know about that, Tim? That the ones and twos would be flattened and the three would be staying? Thanks for letting me know. Yeah, I, and I, but I asked a lady her name and she's from Broadmeadows Housing, mm -hmm. but she wouldn't tell me what her name was. Now, I, I'm worried about the children, which is understandable, we all are. There's 90 children up live on Grand Place and single mothers. Something's got to be done. A lot of people don't want to leave, they are frightened. Every time these people come and they've got big white bags with blue names on them, they're from somewhere, threatening, threatening people, oh, we can give you the world, but then when they come back a second time, no one knows what's going on. So that, that's all I wanted to say. Something's got to be done. We've got to try and live in our means, and if they're offered us less rent, why did they want to reduce the rent? That's a good question. I still don't know because I don't know who the person was. I only found out that the people who live in the three-bedroom ones are safe as houses. But what about poor Irene? She's in a one-bedroom yeah. place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and nothing's know, being known about it. I've had the ones that, the four of them, are supposed to be doing mm. here. Uh, when they had a meeting here, they said that there'd be everybody, there'd be one for every person. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. They told a lot of lies here. Of course right. they are. It was unfortunate because when they came around to me, my daughter was here and a friend upstairs, and we signed. All the lies. Yeah. Uh, and we've been told constantly, and they don't keep in contact. Of course. They do not come and see you. They send out a letter that you know all about, you've been told before, and it's lies. Yeah. It's all Which is lies. No good. On a piece of paper, doesn't mean nothing. Nothing. Why can't they come and see us no face to face? No contact. No contact yeah. at all. Not with me anyway. No one's saying what they actually what their names are. Yeah. I don't care myself. I've got to live somewhere. I've got a disabled son. Yeah. But that's not the point. Yeah. You know? No, there's procedures. You oh, don't, somebody ridiculous. has to write down their name and the mm. office they're from or you don't talk to them. That's it. End yeah. of. Yeah, yeah because they don't think they could be saying anything. Exactly. Just no. in response no. to that, Neville, if they're a public yeah. servant, they absolutely have to give you their well, name. Well, they don't. As long as you're in a three bedroom flat, you'll be safe as houses. But one and twos be flat within 12 months. And I can't, it's just not fair. That's very strange. Oh, tell me about it. My name's Jay, I also live in Bromley. And my question is, mate, it's all about all these people coming and talking to us. But as residents, 
the most thing that we need is answers. And as far as all these people have come, we have no no had no answers about what's happening, where we're going, and signing all these petitions and having all these government members come through. It's all well and good, but at the end of the day, is there a chance for us as residents of saving our our community, or are we just? In the wind, that's, it, that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. That's a very good question. But is there something to say that haunts me at night because I want people to form a group and help me, but I actually, and I don't stick my head above the borderline, but I don't actually know if I can win it for you. None right, of us here I, do. Can I say a few words around So I'm, I'm Howard from Public Housing Defence Network. Um, in answer to the question, no one can guarantee anything because it's ultimately up to the government. But what has actually happened in Ascot Vale and um, Clifton Hill, two other estates, there were residence groups formed there. And also, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that um, they were set up by Dino. One was set up by Dino Barasso from our group. The other one was set up by Fiona Ross from our group. Those two groups are now very successful. Uh, and the government has decided to put those two redevelopments on hold for a year. The problem is that's only for a year. Uh, a year means after the election. We don't know what's going to happen after the election. But... But it did change because yeah. they collectively worked together. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing is I've got my two colleagues here, also from Public Housing Defence Network, Cameron and Alan. They were from the North Melbourne estate. We also tried to set up a residence group there, and for various reasons the residents decided that they would rather relocate. Um, it should be known that, that Alan and, and Cameron and most of the other residents from North Melbourne were successfully put into public housing, right? Not everyone is relocated away from where they can be. A lot of the North Melbourne residents have been relocated around the corner in North Melbourne. Cameron and Alan are not there, but they're, they're not too far out. So they, they took the choice of uh, not staying and fighting but we have two other examples, successful examples so far, but we can't say what's going to happen. So what we're saying is please help us to form a residence group and we can collectively get all information, we can get legal advice. I, I have legal experience, I've worked as a lawyer, I can give an opinion, but I can't give you advice. We have, a, we have an expert in our group, but she can't give advice either. Cameron and Al went to their local community legal service and they got actual advice from a lawyer. Right? That's what we want to do. We want to get advice. So you take into account the lawyer's advice, so you know what your rights are, you know what the government's offering, and you also have a... You think about what you'd rather do and think about joining together and working with us and maybe we can resist. Cameron and Al also had a very good plan to set up um, an occupation... So we were actually going to... We were looking for people. We spent weeks looking for people to get together, to come with us, to go into the vacated, uh, vacated estates and actually occupy those so the government couldn't come in and, uh, and, and demolish. To make a large stronghold. Right. So we tried to get people interested. We couldn't get people interested in it. That's not to say it can't happen in the future. Now, the other thing is squatting. Again, we tried to get squatting. We tried to get squatters in there. Again, not enough interest. That's, again, it's not to say it can't happen in the future. The, the other, last thing is a picket. So Sue Bolton was talking about setting up a picket so you get a group of interested people. It might be like residents, might be people from our group, might be the general public, 
as happened with the East-West Link, that, that was blocked by a community picket. If we can set up a picket, then we might be able to stop the government coming in and demolishing, we might be able to save the estates, right? But again, we can't guarantee that. But at least if we've got a, if we've got a residence group, we can work towards achieving that. I um, grew up in this area and I know and I'm related to a lot of people that live at Grand Place. I also live here still, like on Albion Street, and I work at the local school. My son goes there. I know that there are um, at least eight um, families that will be affected by what's happened. Um, there's already been a few families that have, to, have had to move away and who commute to the school because obviously it's their community, right? Um, so in terms of what could be done practically, just seeing um, the stress and uh, uh, that this is caused to the community that live here um, and just the way that um, over time uh, with the, you know, sort of um, uh, not maintaining the building and not even doing simple things like providing enough rubbish bins has had a sort of, it's sort of um, had a, it's been bad for the morale of the people. So as a local, you know, person who lives, I always come through um, and I always wonder if the people, residents that live here um, could um, perhaps contribute to the um, to livening up the place a little bit more. Maybe we could have an event there, a community event. Maybe we could get to know the residents that live there um, and, and do it on a regular you know, uh, basis. Um, and yeah, you don't have to be living in public housing. You don't have to sort of you know, um, you know, squat to, to, to value the, the importance of um, public housing. So that's definitely something that's practical that other residents that aren't living on Grand Place can um, yeah, contribution that I can make. My name's Shane. I want to address some of the issues, very few of them, that have been raised. It seems to me there's a couple of things this group have got. They've got guts. And they've got community. And on the negative side, I'd like to find out where our representatives are, the representatives in Parliament. <coughs> We've got the council, they've always been helpful to us. But I've got an idea. I think that we all should put up, you were talking about a, a blockade. Right, Albion Street strikes me as a very good spot to have a blockade. Okay, all your legal people, fine. But they certainly won't be helping us unless we've actually got some notice. To get notice, you've got to have the press. Where's the Moreland leader? Like, this is a big story. Well, it should be. Where's the Labor Party? God only knows, seeing it's their policy. So, what I'd really like to see are the people, and I'm going to be signing our pet petition the address, I'd really like to see us, just maybe just this mob, blockade across Albion Street on a Sunday. Because I don't want to stop the entire Brunswick area, but Sunday at, say, 11 o'clock, you'll certainly be getting coverage from newspapers and TV. Sunday's a very slow news day in Melbourne. So let's get 
this group that have something to do. We can't all give legal advice. We can't all be squatters. But we could all turn up at 11 o'clock on a Sunday out there. Now, to do that, pretty technical, you've got to notify the police, fine. Notify Moreland Council, fine. We've got to be prepared also to get thrown off after five minutes. If we do, then we come back here or we go up to the Shields Reserve Park and we talk and we keep this group going. Thank you. What I'd like to do before anyone feels the need to depart is let you know that once you provide your details, I can formally ratify a constitution as Everett Street Residence Group and Friends. Everett Street and Friends. Then the first the first port of call for me is to investigate what legal avenues are open to me as a residence group instead of an individual. That's the most concrete thinking through that I've done to date, apart from sort of putting my head between my knees and saying, how, how am I going to save? It's going to come down to me against a bulldozer. Okay? But but I believe that collectively, and with the people in the street, my Everett Street, who aren't here, who have already done, got skills in researching developments and property and things like that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shank this pony around the street, call on anyone who's got expertise, like the Birdman, assemble as much information as I can, and I'm not going to take no for an answer. And someone's going to have to stand up in public and explain to me, on behalf of the residents, which includes Grong Place, why you're going to demolish this and give it to a developer and not simply rebuild it by green standards for perpetuity. Hi, this is Hugo the Poet. You're listening to 3CR. And by doing that, you're supporting community radio, an incredibly important institution in our times. And this is Solidarity Breakfast. We were at Guam Place, uh, the public meeting. If you're interested in being part of that particular uh, community group, uh, residence group, residents and friends, uh, you can call 0434 422 319. 0434 422 319. Now we're going to go to the committee debate. Uh, tonight, uh, our debate topic very simply is Will Donald Trump tweet us to oblivion? Hands up the people who think he will. Yep. All those opposed? Yeah, I think it's unanimous, we're all going to die. But um, for some of you, and we look out on the crowd, some of you are quite elderly and really not going to take much off your lives, but for the younger people, it really is a little bit depressing. Um, So we are confronted with a very interesting um, uh, US president. Um, Americans um, are strange people. I've never been, I have no ambition to go. but they have, a, they have the best and the worst in America. They have people who don't believe in evolution, for instance. And then along comes Donald Trump, which proves <laughs> that evolution isn't uh, acting in our world in any conceivable way. But it is a world that's turning increasingly upside down. We're very lucky this evening to have uh, only one federal member of uh, parliament to join us. Um, 
But about uh, six or eight weeks ago, Pauline Hanson launched her book. Uh, did anybody buy it? <laughs> I did. I opened it and it's blank. There's nothing in it. It comes with a biro and instructions, please fill in your own racial diatribe here. Um, but what was interesting about that was that she got Tony Abbott to launch the book for her. Now, Tony Abbott's the man who passed around the hat to raise the money to put Pauline Hanson behind bars. And at the, um, at the book launch, she compared herself to Nelson Mandela. <laughs> because what Australia needs is a white Mandela to represent them in their, in their oppression. Um, now, of course, they have similarities. He was in jail for 28 years. She was sentenced to 11, but only served 10 weeks. So the comparison is really... The only difference between them is that he didn't own a fish and chip shop. In other ways, they are completely and utterly parallel souls. So Donald Trump's the man. Um, the... Um, what is he? He's a mandarin. He's an orangutan. He's fairy floss gone mad. Um, he's a narcissist, he's a bully, he's a sexual predator. He's everything you'd want in an American president. <laughs> because all of them in the past have been exactly those things, it's just that he's so deeply obvious about it. <laughs> and uh, he may even now be tweeting something that uh, impels somebody else to press a red button. Now, he has two buttons on his desk, uh, one for nuclear weapons and one to bring him a Coke. Um, so we're going to begin our debate, will Donald Trump tweet us to oblivion? And I'll invite to the uh, uh, lectern uh, Gabe Hogan, who's a Melbourne comedian with a breakfast a radio show on Joy 94.9 FM. Hands up the people who listen to Joy. There you go. Yeah. They came just because of you. Um, she is co-creator of the web census, Some People Are Just Assholes, and have travelled to exotic locations like Warrnambool and Ballarat to uh, <laughs> pursue her comic dreams. Tonight she's in Sydney Road, Brunswick, at the, Melbourne, uh, the Brunswick Town Hall. Tomorrow, New York. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Rod. Thank you for being here and also clearing up who bought that one copy of Pauline Hanson's new book. I appreciate it. <laughs> Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? Quick question. Can Twitter bring down the establishment? Exhibit one, Roseanne Barr. <laughs> we all know what she does. She did. Who doesn't love a bit of Twitter controversy? We all do, we love it, we thrive on it, we retweet it and we favourite it and we eat that shit up. In that disgusting tweet, Roseanne compared Valerie Jarrett, a senior advisor to President Barack Obama, to a Planet of the Apes character. Classy. She was promptly fired, we all know the story, we all know the story, she only has one friend left, another exiled entertainer, Kramer. And if you don't think that Twitter can bring down the establishment, that it doesn't hold power, let me remind you of Justine Seiko. She doesn't have nearly as many followers as Trump, nothing close, just a mere 170, a blip in the ocean. Justine was travelling from New York to South Africa and during her journey was tweeting about the inconvenience of travel. Normal stuff, do you know, like the indignity of being on a business class flight next to someone with body odour. You know, stuff we can all relate to. 
Uh, and then she tweeted, they're recording this shit. Uh, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Horrific, horrific. And with that, she boarded an 11 hour flight. While she was offline and unbeknown to her, she became the number one worldwide trend on Twitter. She worked in PR for a company called IAC, the corporate owner of the Daily Beast, OKCupid and Vimeo. She was fired before her feet even touched the ground. And while Justine and Roseanne were held to account by their employees, who holds Trump to account? Who's going to fire him when he makes an <laughs> uh, inappropriate tweet? While he makes inappropriate tweets. He's already done it, hasn't he? Now, if someone with 170 followers can reach a worldwide audience in the time it takes to fly from New York to Africa, then Trump's pull cannot be ignored. And if you don't think that Twitter is a valuable platform to present your agenda, $2.5 billion is spent annually on advertising on Twitter. So yeah, it kind of needs to be respected. Now, can social media change public opinion? When Trump tweets from his presidential account, he's reaching over 23 million followers. His personal account has over 34,000. We know he doesn't have that many friends. <laughs> doesn't. And every time he does that, he bypasses the media. He has a direct line to his audience and all the American people. I'm just gonna throw this out there. Wanna know who didn't tweet? Hitler. You know what he did do? He released a book, Mein Kampf. You heard of it? <laughs> mein Kampf became the official truth of Nazi Germany. And I'm not comparing Hit Germany to Hitler, sorry, Trump to Hitler. I'm merely comparing tactics to influence people's perception, the releasing of information of a biased or misleading nature. I'll leave that bit out. It's not going to get any laughs. Um, <laughs> Now, you can't deny that Twitter is a powerful tool. Change comes from Twitter. People are exposed, opinions are made, and debate is sparked. And if you don't think that social media has already shaped our opinions, then you're already oblivious. We laugh at Trump. Oh, how we laugh. We laughed at the Comedy Central roast when he said that he was going to be president one day. We laughed when he actually became running for president. Oh, how we lolled. <laughs> it was all fun and games until he got elected to the White House. Turns out, joke was on us. And we still laugh when he uses words like dummy, dopey, and the infamous, <laughs> infamously ridiculous kafifi. We all know the tweet. Despite the negative press, kafifi. Yeah, he's making up words now, so what? <laughs> I could make up a new word, I could. Signap, uh, signap, use it in a sentence? Okay, I will. <laughs> Uh, despite losing my car keys, Signap. <laughs> and I could tweet that every day for a year and you wouldn't even hear about it. I wouldn't have millions of people retweeting it. And we all know about Kafifi. Trump did that. We've pondered over what it means. Urban Dictionary has listed it as a word. It's a new word suggestion for the Collins Dictionary. Like it or not, it's a word. He has literally made us dumber.
In November 2017, Trump tweeted the following, why would King Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I would never call him short and fat? <laughs> See what he did there? <laughs> Clever. I'm sure the Trump supporters don't even know where North Korea is, let alone anything about Kim Jong-un and his dictatorship. But after Trump's treat, oh yeah, they know who he is. Well, they know that he's a short and fat man. He also referred to him as Rocket Man, Rocket Man. <laughs> little Rocket Man, a short and fat little Rocket Man. How adorable. <laughs> I just want to pick him up and ruffle his hair. <laughs> Kim Jong-un is not an astronaut. He's a dictator. And Trump's followers don't know anything about the repression of North Korea or how he reportedly executed top officials, even family members. He imprisoned political opponents while maintaining a vice grip on power. He's not a cute bedtime story. He's a nightmare. And yeah, Trump, he's a fucking idiot. We know that. And yeah, he makes no sense, but despite that, Kafifi. <laughs> You have to understand who his followers are, who he's talking to, his audience, who, does, who is he influencing? Who's he talking to at three in the morning? Do you know? He has a direct line to the people who voted for him. Do you know the people that wear Make America Great, well, Make America Great hats? He's tweeting to the people that can't eat soup out of a polystyrene cup without getting it all over themselves. <laughs> And all he has to do is to make a few little tweets and they've got even less of an idea about what's going on in the world. One could argue they're already in a state of oblivion. Oblivion, the state of being unaware or unconscious of what is happening around you, or the state of being completely destroyed. So can Trump tweet us into oblivion? Fuck yeah. Someone hold his beer. Imagine this, a new romance is brewing in the political playground. It starts off like any other schoolyard romance. First there's a name calling. You're short and fat. Well, you're a dotard. <laughs> Lol, good one, rocket man. Then after insults are traded, they have their first awkward date. But instead of a traditional chaperone, they have 12 bodyguards running next to their car. They meet over dinner, shake tiny baby man hands. <laughs> they share a meal, make plans for the future, show each other their dictatorships. <laughs> then they run home and gush about their feelings towards each other publicly on Twitter, bypassing the gossip magazines and into people's homes. Well, technically Kim Jong-un doesn't do that because he has access to social media, but no one else does that. <laughs> then imagine the romance starts to fade. Things get a little bit messy. You know, I destroyed a missile engine testing site for you. I want all your nukes. <laughs> Give me your sanctions. No. Well, you're a dotard. You are. You're short and fat. I hate you. I hate you. And then Trump gets his friends involved. And by friends, I mean the United States Armed Forces. And King Jong-un gets his friends involved, and by friends, I mean missiles. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, that is how you start a war. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we will reconvene next year for the 19th annual Green Left Weekly debate. Um, 
by then Donald may not be with us. <laughs> and then we'll just sit here and stare at one another, <laughs> regretting the old days when there was something to debate. But nevertheless, we've got him for the moment, ladies and gentlemen. He is ours and ours alone. Um, he will take us day by day closer to the brink. But I want you to remember, this is a man that arranged to play a prostitute $130,000 by having sex with him, but then he said she didn't, and he didn't have sex together. He didn't have sex with that woman. And she got $130,000. Now, I haven't had sex with Donald Trump. <laughs> And I want to know where my $130,000 is. And when I get it, I'm going to donate it to Green Left Weekly. So Hi, I'm Mo Louie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. When we finished last week attempting to work out how a 26% increase on super fund insurance guaranteeing less money in retirement could be, as the insurance industry said, a good thing making the system fairer. Well, no, I still haven't worked it out, listener. If you did, let me know. But I think I may have found the answer in Monday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. It's those little intricacies in the greatest little economic order of them all that we just can't comprehend, but which is practitioners like the insurance industry grasp fully. CP1 main headline, no RBA rate hikes for a year, predicting it would be at least at mid-2019 before the Reserve Bank raised the interest rate. Then turn the page, P3, big four banks to lift mortgage rates. Again, a mystery to an economic ignoramus like me. I won't insult you by including you in my ignorance. And you may well understand why interest rates must go up, because interest rates are not going up. But obviously, like the insurance industry, the big four banks do understand. Well, for a start, we can rule out greed. Taking an uneducated stab, maybe those massive legal bills mounting as they are forced to defend their business modus operandi down at the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission need to be paid, and we can't expect the banks to pay them. But look, no, we won't be cruel to the banks. They are the very heart of the greatest little economic order of them all. And the last thing we need in this society is class warfare. When the omniscient practitioners of the greatest little know, there is no such thing. And if it wasn't for evil unions and out-of-control socialists like comrades, shortened ambition and swanning with bosses, there wouldn't be. Well, there wouldn't be rubbishy claims that what, ex what doesn't exist does exist when we know it doesn't exist. Because again, Monday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1 again. Shortened ambition, swanning with bosses, sharpen class warfare attacks. And next day, swanning with bosses, pay claims, populist nonsense. And a very, very disturbing editorial at the back of the book. Swanning with bosses' agenda will push Labor to far-left fringes. 
what a terrifying thought. And what are the odds? Because the Capitalist Review hates those who raise the chimera of class warfare. And Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Comrade Little Billy Shorten Ambition's sharpened class warfare attack. He told a Socialist Party conference he would, wait for it, sit down, this is economic vandalism, restore penalty rates for the lowest of low paid, whose second annual wage cut came in on Sunday, and new Socialist Party President Comrade Wayne swarming with bosses' populist nonsense. He said corporate CEOs were overpaid, gorging themselves on excessive salaries. He lashed out, and if that isn't class warfare, what is? Thankfully, both ludicrous claims were refuted by those who know. The lowest of low paid accepting the need to slash their wages, I hear. Well, the nearest thing to it, their caring employers, the sundry retail chambers of profits, clarifying the need to slash the lowest of wages so they, the caring employers, can go on doing that to which they devote their lives, creating employment for the lazy, avaricious ingrates. And yet, there were people like Comrade Shorten Ambition who spat out even more ludicrous nonsense like comparing slashing penalty rates in the same week as attempting to slash taxes on the filthy rich, as if there's some connection. And other critics, not Comrade Shorten Ambition in this case, also tried to compare slashing the lowest of low-paid wages on the same day that a parliamentary pay rise came into effect, giving them thousands more. And who rebuffed Comrade Swanningwith's claims as populist nonsense? No less than the CEOs themselves, the sundry chambers of profits, and they'd know if they were being overpaid, were gorging themselves on excessive salaries, and they know they're not. And that push to far-left fringes editorial nailed Comrade Swanningwith's problem. It seems a vested interest is any wealthy individual or company that disagrees with his jaundiced view of the world. And the clincher came from the CEOs themselves and the totally independent of those people, the editorialists. Income inequality has barely increased since the 1990s, they point out. Look, the gap has barely increased. The filthy rich are still filthy rich. And the poorest of poor are still poorest of poor. And it's unfair for the poorest of poor to have to hear this class warfare populist nonsense. End of story. What more proof do we need that so-called class warfare is no more than a socialist myth? Of course, Conrad Little Billy had been in trouble all week, not just for promising to restore penalty rates, but for threatening to rescind tax cuts for the large numbers of the filthy rich, confected class warfare run riot, which forced even members of his own party to criticise his socialism run riot and extract a retraction, ensuring the filthy rich do get their much-deserved tax cuts, and the filthy rich and big supremo Malcolm and the team said Little Billy's threat was a tax increase for the filthy rich because they would be paying exactly the same as they pay now. No, I don't follow that either, but they know. Well, let's clarify that. Not paying tax at the same rate as they are now not paying tax. Showing how shameful is little Billy's attack on those who generate wealth and jobs. Jobs and growth. Jobs and growth. 
Speaking of out-of-control socialists, it takes some sort of ability to spend 20 years in a safe seat, well, a safe seat when he first got it, and never looked like getting off the back bench, but that's the commendable achievement of Socialist Party permanent backbencher Michael Dunby Talent, the member for Melbourne, Ports and Zion, who has announced his retirement. But the bit I found interesting was Tasmanian backbencher Erica Betts on the bosses, who did make the front bench under Tiny a bit more for the bosses, as Minister for a bit more for the bosses, praising the socialist working class hero and declaring he was sorry he was retiring. I've known Michael since we were involved in student politics, albeit on different sides. Uh, and that's the interesting bit. Um, where would they have disagreed? Oh, yeah, maybe they could have had in-depth discussions over whether the dear baby Jesus was the Messiah or, or whether they were. Another retiring working-class hero, Jenny Make Them Poor, the pin-up hero of single mums, being praised for her compassion, and we can be sure single parents will be forming a guard of honour over her compassionate decision to throw them and their kids onto the dole. And in fairness, she didn't really make them poor. She just made them a hell of a lot poorer. And that will be her week that was legacy. Necessary steps to counter the socialist avalanche from the True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association, advising the government to appoint a new batch of fair work, no longer work choices, just looks like it, commissioners, to restore the balance between the caring business class and out-of-control evil unions. The balance the government has attempted to display through its past 14 appointments to the bench, all from the caring employer side. Further proof there's no such thing as class struggle and hopefully a counter to the comrade's shortened ambition, swanning with bosses, done by talent and making them poor nonsense. Meanwhile, down the radio dial at Triple M for Triple Macho, Triple and More Men, Real Men, the real men showed why they are real men by having a great time laughing their way through aspects of childbirth which is generally restricted to women. The fun, fun, fun led by a true man, Barry Hall the Bodies in after he showed what a real tough man he was on the footy field by KOing opponents when the ball was at the other end of the ground. And his opponents weren't quite expecting to be knocked out, although being on Barry, they should have expected it. So to that degree, it was their own fault. And Barry has formed this fun, fun, fun radio segment, a new organisation to show his respect for and defend women, called Terrific Humour Undermining Gynaecology, known affectionately as Thug. Although Barry assured us what he said wasn't the real him, must have been a radio him or a ventriloquist or something, they all say that, don't they? It wasn't the real me. Eddie Maguire, you so poor, does it every time he drops a sexist or racist or homophobic or whatever comment. It's never him, not the real him. And this US of telewoman, or now former telewoman Rosie something, said her racial attacks, including the N-word, had nothing to do with her and they were to do with some medication. Blame the GP, the pharmacist. And she even resorted to the Holocaust defence. It hurts her as a Jew that people she hurt attack her, as if that has anything to do with it. Uh, and finally, more excitement, an application to join Thug from Libertarian Senator David Lyinghelm. Sorry, it's not lying, it's lion, lion, a real man, a lion at the helm. Sorry, David, where would I have got lying from? Anyway, Barry and the fun team at Triple Macho 
uh, Triple M should have an hilarious time with David and David can tell them about this bloody Greens person whom he put in her place when she complained about domestic violence. And we all know where a woman's place is. They'd fall about at their own humour, showing women like the Green Senator just don't have a sense of humour, or worse, don't know where a woman's place is. Good morning. Yes, it's the Concrete Gang looking for your money this Monday the 9th of July at... The Bowling Club at Port Melbourne. 11am. Spring Street, Port Melbourne. Be there. It's going to be a great turn. We're going to have the jaded cats. It's going to be fun, fun, fun. Make money for 3CR. Get a feed. Win a raffle. And... Get legless. Get legless. (laughs) What time? I said 11am, but we'll do it again because that was pretty bad. That's some of my best work. In Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've come to the last half hour uh, and we're going to look at the right to strike uh, on the 30th of June, the last day of the month. They uh, There was a meeting of people, like-minded people, who wanted to talk about uh, the issue of the uh, right to strike. And, of course, this is pivotal to uh, changing the balance of power in the industrial landscape in Australia at the moment. So we'll kick off with uh, the MC, who was Lucy Horan. You might know Lucy from uh, Teachers for Refugees. She's a delegate from the, from the AEU. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, she ex- gives a background to why the meeting was uh, called. Thanks everybody for coming. I want to start off by acknowledging that we're holding this meeting on Aboriginal land and the fight for justice and sovereignty is still ongoing and it's very much bound up in our, in our struggles um, for strike and for workers' rights as well. My name is Lucy Honan, a member and a representative of the AEU and I'm a state councillor with the AEU as well. We're all very, very aware of the offensive that the Liberals and the employers are on and they're increasingly aggressive um, and confident in their tactics Um, and symbolic of that tomorrow uh, penalty rates are going to be cut 10 to 15% again. And that's just one of the symbols of what is kind of going on at the moment in terms of the um, in terms of the offensive. We've got Mal here, who's been out for 374 days today. Mm. Um, we've seen the ABCC come back in force. We've seen uh, EBAs terminated across the country and people forced to renegotiate hard-won conditions. Um, but as many of us would know, as Delegates at a rank and file level, even EBAs that we have fought for, um, you know, in all of the uh, regulated and um, highly controlled ways, are becoming really difficult to actually enforce at a workplace level, and 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 our, our and our rights are being eroded constantly. We've seen, and I'm sure we'll have the um, the the discussion about the Sydney train train strikes and the Fair Work Commission and what it's what it's come to represent for so many of us really clearly in terms of an enemy of of, of unions and, and working class people. That's become clearer and clearer. But another example of that was the declaration that penalty. Uh, sorry, there is no problem with um, pay inequality in the early childhood sector. I mean, 
it's not it's not reality and they're trying to they're trying to paint something as if it's not but we yeah there's a growing div division there so we have that on the one hand but on the other hand we have the really interesting and juicy context of the change the rules campaign so we've seen in melbourne in particular uh, the very strong delegates meeting a few months ago, which was electric. It was absolutely electric to feel all of the, you know, as Sally McManus called us, the most important people in Melbourne in the room together, talking to each other about what we need and, and the fact that this system and the rules are broken and what do we need to do to change it. Uh, we saw the, um, the 100,000 people on the streets in Melbourne after that and many of those people on illegal strike action as it turns out. We have a very useful context there but we're here today to talk about use in this context of a severe offensive and a, and a useful ACTU campaign. How can we drive this question of the right to strike right into the centre of that? How can we make this demand about the right to strike um, front and centre of the Change the Rules campaign and elevate the political demand so that it becomes a, a, an industrial reality um, in this country? The, the two comrades are going are gonna to talk us through in terms of the reality and why it is that we need that right to strike, whether it's about the need for solidarity action from other unions so that we're not leaving our comrades out for 374 days in a row without any, any kind of solidarity um, action at the same time. Uh, we, as I referenced before, the, 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 the fact that the Fair Work Commission was just able to terminate um, industrial action even after everybody had jumped through the hoops, had ticked all the boxes, had balloted, had gone through the motions. You know, the fact that they were able to terminate that has sent a really strong signal. Uh, but all of the things in the Change the Rules campaign that Sally McManus and the ACTU has articulated, I think all of us know that our prospects of winning those fairly and squarely and holding on to those rights are really limited unless we have the right to strike, unless we have that power to take industrial action how we want to, when we want to, and in the way that we want to. Raising the question of the right to strike, even if we don't have the capacity to call an all-out strike, like the CFMEU walking off, you know, one day in the city and telling their members, yep, it's illegal industrial action and we are going to take it. If, we, if our unions don't have that power at the moment to do that, what is it that we can do? How do we push back? How do we generalise this as a question for people so that it's occurring to our comrades at work or other union delegates and our union officials that, yeah, actually we do need this and we need to push the ACTU to make right to strike not the thing that falls off at the end of the PowerPoint presentation but the first thing that we talk about um, when we're talking about change the rules. So it's about creating it as a political demand um, but also what kind of actions can we call, what kind of things that we can do that mimic, for example, the MUA who called, uh, actually called a stop work action in Sydney last month around, the, around the, the demand of a right to strike. What can we do to actually push our unions to do the same thing? <clears throat> And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're at a meeting that was about uh, uh, the right to strike and uh, th that was uh, the... Uh, she, uh, Lucy Heron uh, was uh, talking about two speakers, Mel Woods, who is one of the delegates, the AMWU, one of the AMWU delegates from down at Longford. That was what she was referencing, the men being out for over 360 days already uh, to prove a point that uh, the rules are broken. Uh, if you want to hear a bit about the anniversary of that, uh, next week's Stick Together will be focusing on that um, 
particular dispute. But we're not going to take you to uh, Mel Wood's speech. We're going to take you to Brian Evans. Right, Brian Evans was the other speaker. He's from the uh, the uh, rail tram and bus union and uh, he uh, has some very interesting things to say about approaches to industrial disputes. Look Brian Evans, I organise some of the traditional blue collar areas of the RTBU, we're all unionists here, I'm going to run this like a union meeting. Um, At the end of the day we've got a major flaw in Australian culture, society and we had this conversation when I walked in the room with a few people who rocked up early about how people hopping out of school and Mel touches them well don't know what unions are. I've got no clue. Um, I was one of the lucky ones. I'm in that 34, 35 age bracket without giving too much away. Um, <laughs> I'm in that age bracket. I hopped out of school, straight into apprenticeship. There was still 100% union industry. I'm lucky. I was taught by people who had been around through some of the, the big disputes of the 80s and 90s, some old BLs. Um, ETU comrades that taught me some fundamental things that I've been privileged enough to take with me. So I like to think, without being conceited about the whole thing, that I was lucky enough to get a bit of an inside run um, from my generation about how things should be and not how things are. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, with my generation of mates, well, you know, not that I had loads of them, but um, the ones that I did have, um, they all fell into industries where, what's a union? What's this? Here's your contract, off you go, enjoy, and when we want to get rid of you, we're going to get rid of you. There is no transparency on the rights, or the very little rights that you have under that circumstance, and and that's a huge issue. It is no longer normal, and anyone could walk down any office in this city, walk onto any floor, and ask them what their rights of work are, and they've got four-fifths of knowledge on what they are. If they want to negotiate an individual contract, what are they going to do? walk out, be replaced in six hours by somebody else who's banging for a job that needs to feed their family. That is broken. It is absolutely broken. Now, the RTBU, lucky space. Um, We are one of those unions that um, are part of, I guess, those old unionised fortresses, the construction industry that hold on really well. And I want to acknowledge an element, and this isn't spoken to or spoken about too much, of apathy that must have occurred somewhere down the line to make this happen. (coughs) Somewhere, someone got into this comfort organising space We thought, you know what, we're going to look after our patch and it doesn't matter really what happens over there if they disintegrate because ultimately our guys are good, we're getting paid, we've got the rights, we can walk off, not an issue. And then, and I was around for this bit, we had that oh shit moment when work choices rocked up on our doorstep. Right? Everyone sort of went, what? No way. And we got out in the streets... 100,000, best rally I've ever been to, although I'll talk about the one we had the other day, that was pretty good. Um, one of the best rallies I've ever been to, and what was that, 2003-ish, four, give or take, um, and that inspired a whole bunch of people, unfortunately, who were already inspired to get up and stand up and stop it. And then we got the Labor Party elected and we all went to shit, and we did nothing, all right? And that's pretty much the fact of it. I mean, you laugh at it, we didn't carry on that momentum like we should have at the time to seal a deal. We went halfway. And historically, going halfway is usually a very bad idea. And we didn't learn from that. And we went halfway and we didn't fix it. We went back to controlling our little areas and organising and doing what we could. And those that were strong then are still strong now. But up until four weeks ago, we didn't hear about hospitality workers. You know, 
Nobody heard about that person who's doing 60 hours a week, pouring coffee, getting paid for 38 as a casual for the last six years. Right? There's nothing casual about it. And so I guess what I'll talk to is a couple of the disputes I know you want to hear about with the, with the uh, Sydney strikes. Not that I know a hell of a lot of that. But mainly drawing comparison to what happened down here in Victoria in 2015. And I guess some of the challenges, and I'm going to be really honest about some of those challenges, it's, it's not all, you know, kick the door in, flip over the boss's desk, wave the Eureka flag around and bang, dispute resolved. It's not like that. And in rail, the average age is probably about 55. So when I walked in five, five years ago, seems like not long ago, um, we still have a lot of people that are around in those days. I mean, they're starting to diminish in number now, but they'll tell you stories of the glory days when, you know, the organisers come down because somebody's having an issue up in Spring Street, they'd all walk off the dub, job up the street, half of them would disappear into pubs on the way, and they'd make their point up in Spring Street and then go back to work whenever the hell they felt like it. And that's the way things need to be. Those types of attitudes, you know, you, you can't take the piss out of those. We've all woken up to that, right? Um, that apathy, organising that we will because we can type of attitude, I think, has, has fallen off a, a lot of respect. And I think, honestly, that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, but those type, that, that ability, that threat to do that brings an element of cultural awareness across the whole country where you don't need to worry about how we're going to legislate to protect a certain condition that we have, and take Medicare as an example, because if we took it away, we wouldn't have to fight that in Parliament or in the courts. The people across the country would walk off the job and you'd be dumped out of your job pretty quick smart. It's that whole, is the economy there to serve the workers or the workers there to serve the economy? Um, it comes all back down to that, and, and we lost our way in that space. So the ability and the threat to be able to do that brings an element of social... It's not the be-all and end-all, but it brings that element of social justice along the way where things are naturally more in balance because people can crack the shit, mm. all right? And they have an ability. They don't have to wait three years between bargaining rounds to crack it for a week and hopefully not get their industrial action terminated by some buffhead who's never worked a day in his life. <laughs> and that, that's the world we find ourselves in now. And that's if you're lucky enough to be in a unionised industry that's covered by an EA. Mm. If you're not, you don't have that right, ever. Because if you do walk out, or you and your mate walk out, or the ten people you've got together walk out, you'll be replaced by a temp tomorrow. That's the reality. And in rail, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit, um, there was a time four or five years ago, where we had a huge casualisation problem, not in the operations grade, we're split up, and I won't go through the intricacies of that, but in infrastructure, the blue-collar spaces, the track maintenance area, we had a huge problem. 50% of the work that we had in that space was casual. And the issues that we had at the time, and this is, once again, personal perspective, you'd walk down Airgate, the chief uh, maintenance operation area of Metro, and you'd have your Metro employees full-time on the right, sitting there doing what they wanted to do, and you had 200 casual employees on the left, and there's this hatred. Mm. There's this hatred between the two because they're there undermining us, trying to take our jobs, and they're sitting there going, well, why do they hate me? I've got a week too, so bugger them. We'll, we'll, we'll give them one back and, you know, we'll do that shift and I'll have to eat. And, and they're all fair concepts. But somewhere that was allowed to occur, you know, and, and we don't address that enough. That, that was allowed to occur. The right to strike obviously had a huge impact on not, just not being able to go, you want to employ what? A casual? No, nah, we're out. Couldn't do that. But there are steps that we could have taken 
to address that at the time. And I think by not recognising some of those failures along the way, you're just going to make them again. So we, we've got to learn from those types of lessons and understand that we don't go halfway, we've got to seal the deal, you know, we've got to be really, we can't drop our guard. <clears throat> Since humankind made it society in general, it's always been the 1%, right? That fight's not new. This is not a new struggle. It's been there forever. So to think that, okay, we can just stop now and chill out for a few years and knock off to the pub is a, is a bullshit attitude. And we, we've really got to work on that. But before I get shown the clock, a um, couple key disputes we had down here, and I want to contrast those with Sydney and, and talk about lessons learned and some of the complications that brings up for an organiser. Um, 2015 EA round operations here in Victoria. Uh, we stopped the trains for the first time. How long, Cuck? 19 years? 27. I get confused between those numbers. A long bloody time. 18. Uh, 18, 19, something like that. We stopped the trains for the first time. And I remember being part of that at the time and um, getting that firm legal advice. The members were keen. We'd, we'd gone through the process. And I'll talk about how frustrating that process is in a minute. You know, we visited every station. We made sure the members agreed to it. We accessed the 24-7 industry. All layers of delegates and had, you know, thousand meetings and done all that and did the vote and did the parbo and all waited for the results while everybody you know, reminded them how to vote and that whole six week seven week process and we finally granted the right to strike <laughs> hallelujah right that's grouse um, and then we go to notify to take this action and we're getting legal advice along the way because you know the only one that benefits from this is the lawyers after all <laughs> and oh, they make the most out of this and um Lawyers are sitting there and they're telling us, you know, if you go the whole hog on this, they're going to knock you off. And then everyone sort of sits in the office up in Luba's office up in the top right corner and we all sort of glare at each other and I'm like, shit, it's probably already 7pm at night. And we're like, that's not ideal. And there's a debate. <clears throat> do we go the whole hog and go bugger it and risk it? Or do we try to mitigate that? Now, some of you might be sitting there going, well, of course you ignore and bugger it, just go the whole hog, right? Because that's what, as unionists representing our members, our guts tell us to do. Yeah, fuck that, we're unionists, we're going to do it. That's our right, happy days. Um, but the reality is, you're there to, to serve your membership. You're there to lead them to make the right choices. Lead them is probably the wrong word, but you're there as their representative. You're, there are occasions in this job where... You've got to make calls and go and test those decisions with the membership to make sure they endorse those decisions. That's, that's the way you work as a transparent organiser. So you've got to go out there with some sort of position. Um, and there was a debate about do we go the whole hog or do we go halfway? And we opted based on the risks of the sound legal advice that we got in the time by very competent people who knew the framework in which we had to endure. We were going to pull a four-hour stoppage and we are going to do trains, on, uh, trains and trams together. They said, oh, no, you can't do the trains and trams together. Oh, shit, that, that's, that, that's too much. Right. Um, so the choice was made to separate them over cross, uh, separate days. And after we notified for those two four-hour stoppages for the first time in 18, 19 years, I'm, I'm not great with detail, um, 18, 19 years, we get hauled into the Commission to terminate our industrial action. Right. And um, you get these moments, you're sitting there, you were, you were there, weren't you, Catherine? We were and we were the sitting time. there... And uh, we were there till like midnight, and we're sitting in there, we're listening to all Who's these... Who's up to the commission, though? Huh? Who's on the other side? I'll get to that. <laughs> I don't know where you're going with that. Um, and we're sitting there, 
while all these managers from Metro get up on the stand, this is a true story, remember Ron Brea's story? Yep. Ron Brea, he's some senior GM over at the company, he gets up and he sits on the stand and he goes, well, Commissioner, Your Honour, well, I can't remember what he called him, he goes, if we do this, is a real risk to the public. You know, it's terrible. There's a health and safety risk. We need to terminate this industrial action. This is one of many arguments they fielded, but this is one that sticks out to me. Because if the public think there's a strike on, what the public will do is go and hold picnics on the track. <laughs> and, and, and they'll have lunch and they won't understand, you know, I might be being creative with the way, but that, that's his point. The, the, the public will walk on the train tracks and, you know, they'll go jogging on the train tracks and they'll eat lunch and hold hands and all that type of stuff and they won't realise that the train still might be running. And that was, that was one of the key points of their argument. And, and you're sitting there, and I'll, I'll humour Kath because I know she wants me to make this point. Uh, and you're sitting there, and this is kind of where I was going before with the whole we went halfway with work choices. And... Who walks in? It's, it's the state government and their legal representation to terminate a Labor state government. Mm. Right. And it's mm. a shame. It's, it is a shame. But in my days of having any faith in that organisation is well gone. Um, but that's not the point. The point of the exercise is I'm, I'm still a paid-up ALP member. I just won't call it proud. Um, at, at the end of the day, your Labor Party, in that sense, just to drill down on that a little bit, they're a tool that we can use and try to make sure... It's there to be used to represent our members. That's what it's there for, as far as I'm concerned. That, that's how I view it. There are some people who probably have a differing view to that, and that's fine. Um, but that's the body in which we can get the best results as it stands today for our membership. So I've got no problem. Well, God, I've gone way over. I've got heaps more notes here. Anyway, um, the point I was trying to make about that industrial action was that... Uh, in contrast to what happened in Sydney. And this is the point. So we have to go out and explain to our members that we can only do a four-hour stoppage on one day, because if you go hard, we're all going to get our action terminated. And conveying that to 1,000 members, or 3,000 members as it may be, who work in that space or are affected by that agreement, isn't the easiest thing in the world. It's very difficult to convey some of the smart manoeuvring you have to do to work within that framework. And it opens up a whole series of questions that you better have the answers for or else you're going to get slaughtered by your own membership, which is fair enough because the, you're their rep. You know, you're there to provide those answers for them and give them that comfort. And contrasting that with what happened in Sydney, um, I dare say they would have gotten, you know, I'm not a New South Wales branch organiser, I'm a Victorian branch organiser, they would have had that same legal advice. And they took that attitude of, we're going the whole hog. I've got nothing against that. I think that's fine if that's the route you know, you want to take and your members want to take happy days. But that ended exactly where we were warned and I guess that gave us a bit of confidence that we did the right thing back then and that we did structure it the right way. But then if you think of that from where we all sit from a union standpoint, it's bullshit that we have to feel that way, right? It is absolutely shit that we have to reconcile these types of values. Do we go to the hog and get litigated out of existence, therefore our members' conditions get blown out the window altogether? Or not. Um, and, look, I think in closing, because I'm really well over now, um, I've got a lot of confidence now seeing the Change the Rules campaign and I'm seeing a general, a general resurgence of something that makes me happy. Because there is a Change the Rules campaign based on nothing else other... It's not reactive. You know, we've always been reactive. This is proactive. This is us getting on the front foot. 
And um, it's a newer generation coming through the movement and there's engagement and a lot of people are getting on board and we need to follow this one through. We need to go the whole lot on this one. We need the right to strike and very little process around that. And that will just make this country a better place. Yeah, well, that's the end of the program today, Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, just to remind you that the ACTU conference is starting on the 17th to the 18th of July up in Brisbane uh, Convention Centre, and uh, the uh, motion to uh, for the right to strike to be front, front and centre stage in the Change the Rules campaign is going to be put forward. So it's uh, we should watch this space. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with a song called Hammer. It's time to strike it blow. I will fall with a hammer in my hand. And I'll die with a hammer in my hand. I will fall with a hammer in my hand. And I'll die with a hammer in my hand. They say, give a child a You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.